This morning we want to look at Christ's method, but before we observe his method, I want us to look at one of the most well-known of Ellen White's statements in all of Adventism. In fact, not long ago, there was a whole quarter that was devoted to this statement. Yet I don't think we've really understood it. Let's look at the quote briefly so we can better understand Christ's methods. A revival among us is the what? Greatest and most urgent of all our needs. To seek this should be our first work. The word revival, however, never stands alone. There must be a revival of something, something that was once done and is now left undone. In Munich, it used to be the beer capital of the world. And so they have sought to have a revival, a revival in beer drinking. And so they have the Oktoberfest. And that's a revival. But that's not the revival among us. That's the greatest and the most urgent of our needs. And so we look at this a little more closely and it says a revival of what? True godliness is what we need. But what is true godliness? Review and Herald, Helen White said this, Christ gave a perfect representation of true godliness by combining the work of a physician and a minister. If we need, as our most urgent and pressing need, a revival of true godliness, we find that true godliness combines the work of a physician and a minister. True godliness is being joined together. It's from bended knee to bedside. Ministering to the needs of both body and soul. Healing physical disease. And then speaking words that brought peace to the troubled heart. We'll watch him do that today. Let's look again at the quotation. A revival of true godliness among us is the greatest and most urgent of all our needs. To seek this should be our first work. In triage, do you use that word here in Australia? In triage, what kind of problem is addressed first? The most urgent. So what problem, if we're working in church work, what problem should be triaged first? True godliness. We have many needs, but our first work is true godliness. And what is true godliness? Combining the work of physician and minister. What's the work of a physician? Ministering to the needs of the body, healing physical disease. What is the work of a minister? Ministering to the needs of the soul and speaking words that bring peace to the troubled heart. God calls us to true godliness by, bo- by doing both. Christ set us the example. Christ was bound up in all branches of the work. He did not make any division. He did not feel he was infringing on physicians when he healed the sick. 
He proclaimed the truth, and when the sick came to him for healing, he asked them if they believed that he could make them whole. He was just as willing to lay his hands in healing on the sick and afflicted as he was to preach the gospel. He was just as much at home in this work as in proclaiming the truth. For healing the sick, read it with me, is a part of the gospel. Not the whole of the gospel, but neither is it gospel without it. It's a part of the gospel. This is not complicated. Seventh-day Adventists have been called to be modern Good Samaritans, extending a helping hand to the robbed and injured lying in our pathway. Our present-day priests and Levites must not pass by the robbed and injured lying in their pathway using modern excuses about it being out of their specialty. To take people right where they are, whatever their position, whatever their condition, and help them in every way possible, this is gospel ministry. Let's read that together. This is such an important concept. To take people right where they are, whatever their position, whatever their condition, and help them in every way possible. This is gospel ministry. Help in any way you can. It may be necessary for ministers to go into homes of the sick and say, I'm ready to help you, and I will do the best I can. I'm not a physician, but I am a minister, and I like to minister to the sick and afflicted. The next two phrases are crucial to understand. If we would minister to the sin-sick soul, find someone with a sick body. Those who are sick in body, or what are the next three words? Are nearly always sick in soul. But the converse is also true. When the soul is sick, the body is made sick. True godliness understands this connection and doesn't just take care of the body or the soul, but ministers to both. The true minister seeks to help the sick. The true physician seeks to minister to the soul. And that is true godliness. And it's a revival of that that's our most urgent and greatest need. What an opportunity, we're told, the consecrated physician has to show a Christ-like interest in the patients under his care. A lot of physicians and healthcare providers think this is more complicated than it is. Some years ago, a physician educated in Adventist schools from grade one, academy, college, Loma Linda, told me they'd never given a Bible study in their life. Didn't know how. Many have been given the idea that you have to know all the correct doctrinal texts to help the soul of the patient. I grew up going to a lot of seminars on how to witness. They gave various answers to objections, the various Bible studies on doctrines. It's good, I don't condemn it, but it is not what God most calls us to do. Notice just how simple the work of a physician, a dentist, a healthcare provider really is. It is his privilege to speak encouragingly to them and bow at their bedside to offer a few words of prayer. See, it's not just from bended knee to bedside, but it's from bended knee to bended knee at the bedside. 
I can't give a talk like Mark Finley, but I can speak encouragingly to patients. And when appropriate, offer a few words of prayer. And that's the most satisfying part of my medical practice. There are ways that even a busy practice with short encounters, we have opportunities to speak encouragingly to patients. I've found that the simple question while I'm washing my hands, going into the room, washing my hands, give me an insight before the encounter. I'll often ask, and my, I'll see 20 plus patients in the morning, 20 plus, plus patients in an afternoon. Short encounters. But um, I'm washing my hands, have you had a good year? And when there's a pause in the answer, or a tentative answer, or I guess it's been okay, it invites a sympathetic follow-up that uncovers the death of a spouse, the diagnosis of cancer of a child. Often it gives an opportunity to speak some encouraging word to a person that's anxious or grieving. And when appropriate, there are opportunities to say a few words of prayer. Let me just share a few experiences the instruction is not complicated, but it works. A patient came to the office and expressed an interest in health. How could I encourage her? I encouraged her to come to the cooking school that was going to be the class that was going to be that Thursday evening. I gave her a little announcement to the meeting, and she came. She expressed interest in joining a group to study with a small group that were seeking to understand the big themes of the Bible. Small group studying big themes. The next week, I gave her a personal call to come to our home and join such a group. I've been involved in so many things that I don't have time to prepare Bible studies, but I can show video series of different seminars that give us these big themes, and she came, and she started coming to church. And a month ago, she was baptized. But during the year, just three months ago, although she was running five miles a day, felt perfectly fine, they found a huge mass in her colon, and she has an 8% survival chance. And she told me last Sabbath when we were at church how grateful she was that just a short encounter, couple seconds encounter, little invitation, and now as she faces the crisis of end life events, she has Jesus with her. She does not walk alone. She has a f- church family, which she never had before. She doesn't walk alone. And she's grateful for that. A minister came to my office with a concern about a sore on his forehead, which was a little basal cell cancer, which is not much, but as we looked at him, I found a dark spot on his abdomen that really concerned me. What brought him in 
was really nothing, but what we found once he was there was a melanoma. We did the surgery, it was a melanoma in situ. So we did the surgery, took it out, and I always ask before I do surgery if uh, they'd mind if we'd have a word of prayer. And so far I haven't been turned down, sooner or later I'm sure I will be. But uh, as a result of just asking him for prayer, it changed the conversation. I love the kinds of surgeries we do. My son-in-law, who's a colorectal surgeon, doesn't think I do surgery. But uh, I don't think that he has opportunity to minister to his patients that are sound asleep like I do, <laughs> fully awake. He asked me to speak, this uh, minister asked me to speak to his church twice now. And um, uh, we've had many opportunities to befriend uh, the community just as a result of a simple prayer and a few words of spiritual thought as we're doing surgery. The program coordinator of the Rotary Club asked if I would speak for their Rotary Club. Um, and he, as he was introducing me, you know the thing that made him, that, that he said in the introduction, it wasn't where I'd gone to medical school, it wasn't the different um, specialties or degrees. He only said, this is the doctor that prayed with me before he did surgery. I had a patient a couple years ago that came into the office and I had um, a squamous cell cancer. He, uh, when I asked when we were doing the surgery if uh, he would mind if I had a word of prayer, he says, well, he says, I'm an atheist, so if it makes you feel better, it's okay. <laughs> I assured him that made me feel better. So he says, then you better do it, Doc. <laughs> it was a little tense moment, but, uh, uh, and I wondered, should I have even asked him? His brother came into the office the next week just to tell me, that their family had been trying to pray with this particular person for years, and he wouldn't let them, but he came bragging that his doctor had prayed with him, this atheist. A year ago, he came back to the office for an emergency. I looked him over, couldn't find anything that was wrong at all, and I suddenly realized there's something else going in on here. He didn't really come about his skin problem. There must be something else. So um, after I sh reassured him about the issue that he'd had to see me that day for, gave him something, uh, probably some little steroid uh, cream or something uh, for that, um, I said, tell me, I'm going to call him George, tell me, George, how's everything going in your life? In tears came into his eyes because he said, last week, Dr. Mills, my son, his son was 40 years old, had been helping a neighbor, fell from the ladder and was killed. And as he was just sharing this, I suddenly realized why he was there. He wasn't there for his skin. He really wanted to talk to me about that issue. 
And so I said to him, I said, George, um, do you mind if I have a little word of prayer with you? And this time he didn't say, if it makes you feel better, doctor. He said, please pray, please pray. If we really want to know how to minister to the soul and the body, we should be looking at the one who really knows how this is done, and that's Jesus Christ. And I'd like to accompany him on a house call. Not many physicians make house calls today. There's no time. Our waiting rooms are too busy. It's too expensive to go to the home. But Jesus was never too busy to make house calls. But if we need to give a context, if we really want to understand our story this morning, Luke 8, 40 says, So it was when Jesus returned that the multitude welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. Compared to Jesus, we don't know what it is to be busy. I'm tired after seeing patients for eight hours, but Jesus didn't wait to start at 8 a.m. or stop at 5 p.m. He healed crowds of people in the evening, counseled Nicodemus by night, robbed his sleep by storms that he stilled, praying long before sunrise, treating demoniacs at dawn, teaching disciples through the day. Jesus' waiting room always seemed to be full. The context is given in Matthew and summarized well by my favorite modern author at length, faint and weary with the work of teaching and healing. Jesus left the multitude in order to partake of food in the house of Levi. But the people pressed about the door, bringing the sick, the deformed, and the lunatic for him to heal. As he sat at the table, one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, came. Jairus was an influential man in Capernaum. As ruler of the synagogue, his job was a combination of senior pastor, head deacon, head elder. It was not easy for this haughty leader to swallow his pride and seek help from Jesus. To seek Jesus was to lose his synagogue position. It meant ridicule and rejection by the religious leaders. But his only child, a 12-year-old daughter, was dying. In a last desperate resort to preserve her life, Jairus turned to Jesus. Previously, he had consulted the most learned pediatricians in Israel. But they had given his daughter up to die. Because Jairus waited until his daughter was at the point of death to finally seek Jesus, his daughter was too critical for him to carry her. And so he set off on his mission alone. So desperate had he become that even the fact that Jesus was at the home of a despised publican could not detour him. Pushing his way through the outcasts and the poor, waiting outside the door of, of Matthew's house, Jairus gained admittance. And he fell down at Jesus' feet and begged him to come to his house. Stopping his lunch, leaving untasted some of the food lovingly prepared for him, Jesus and his disciples immediately started out to make this house call. But it was not alone for the daughter that Jesus went to the mansion of the ruler of the synagogue. On the way to heal the daughter, Jairus sought to heal the father, the synagogue ruler like the pastor that came with one problem on his skin that he worried about, 
but didn't realize he had a much more dangerous problem that was discovered elsewhere on his skin. As Jesus went, the multitudes thronged him. Mark adds that it was a great multitude that was around him. And this great multitude brought Jairus' emergency, its first apparent obstacle, but really its solution, more time with Jesus. The crowd of people was so great, there was virtual gridlock, and though the anxious father impatiently tried to speed the pace, Jesus could only move slowly in the direction of Jairus' home. The pictures of Jesus in crowds are almost always wrong. Generally, they show him with plenty of personal space between him and the next person in the crowds. His comfort zone's not invaded, but that's not how it was. It might be helpful to get an eyewitness description of Jesus surrounded by crowds. Upward look 57, he allowed the crowd to press round him and complain not, though sometimes almost lifted off his feet. His was a crowded waiting room, and he had no back entrance. He never allowed the impatience of those waiting to make him either impatient or hurried. I love the eyewitness report of inspiration. Let the Holy Spirit play the YouTube video on the screen of your imagination. Although it was only a short distance, their progress was very slow. For the people pressed forward on every side, eager to see the great teacher who had, made, who had created so much excitement, begging his attention and his aid. The anxious father urged his way through the crowd, fearful of being too late. But Jesus, pitting the people and deploring their spiritual darkness and physical maladies, what was he looking at? Spiritual and physical, stopped now and then to minister to their wants. He saw the physical needs and ministered to the physical problems. He saw the spiritual needs and treated the spiritual problems. He ministered to both. I wonder which requests were granted. I wonder what made him stop now and then. Wonder which requests were ignored. Some in the crowd made desperate attempts to get near him and get his attention. And you can just see these waves as they're trying to push through and people are falling toward Jesus. Occasionally he was nearly carried off his feet by the surging masses. Though most of the stories of this experience will have to wait for heaven, there is one video clip that's preserved for us to watch. In stark contrast to the medical crisis of a dying girl is the chronic problem of an older woman. Luke 8:43. now a woman having a flow of blood for 12 years. Stop and think about this detail for a moment. The very same year, Jairus and his wife were rejoicing over the birth of their one and only child. This woman began mourning the loss of her health. Now, 12 short years later for Jairus and 12 long years later for the woman, they both have a need that only Jesus can fill. Sometimes my receptionist will get a call from a new patient demanding to be seen now 
for skin problem they've had for years. This woman's problem had been present for years. Why would she wait to seek Jesus after that long a time? We don't know exactly what was the cause of the woman's menorrhagia, fibroids, polyps, adenomyosis, pelvic inflammatory disease, thyroid problems, endometriosis, liver or kidney disease. Whatever the medical diagnosis, the woman would have become anemic from the prolonged bleeding, decreasing her endurance. Furthermore, this poor woman was not only sick, she was ostracized like a leper. She was unclean. She could not worship in the temple. She couldn't get a job. She couldn't have a relationship with her husband. When her problem began, Facebook friends Googled menorrhagia, but found no answers. Acquaintances suggested this remedy and that remedy, this diet and that diet, but nothing worked. In fact, some of the treatments worsened her condition. In a frantic but fruitless search for help, she had gone from physician to physician, specialist to specialist. Dr. Luke is diplomatic when speaking of his fellow physicians. He says she spent all her livelihood on physicians and could not be healed by any. But Mark felt under no such professional restraints. He bluntly says she had suffered many things from many physicians. She had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. Like Jairus' daughter, this woman had been abandoned to die by the physicians. Acute problems impact us far differently than chronic conditions. Chronic conditions grind us down emotionally, socially, financially. At last, this woman had no more money to spend. She had no one to turn to. Her friends were tired of hearing about her problem and she couldn't discuss it with them. Her prayers had seemed unanswered. Alone, penniless, friendless, and forsaken, she despaired of ever having a life again. Like Jairus, when every other solution failed, she turned to Jesus. Jesus' waiting room was filled with stories of failure. These were the poor, the hopeless, the rejected, the marginalized, the ignorant, the weak, the odd, the misfits. But it was these outcasts that were transformed by Christ and made up the early church that is the wonder of the universe and standard that judges all subsequent generations of Christians. Those who'd been deformed, those who'd been outcasts, lunatic. We don't have the details about how she got the funds to travel to Capernaum where Jesus often stayed. We don't know how far she had to travel or how long it took her in her weakened state. But without an appointment, she too was outside in the waiting room outside Matthew's house trying to reach Jesus. She may have watched Jairus as he cut to the front of the line and got inside the house. But this woman faced daunting odds in reaching Jesus. Have you ever tried to communicate with some very famous person? What are the odds that you would be able to talk with the President of the United States or the Queen of the, is it the Royal Commonwealth? The Commonwealth? Not easy. First, she had no influential position that would make the crowd open up so she could push through the crowd. Crowd gave her no notice. 
they would not open up for her. Second, she had no emergency to get the disciple gatekeeper's attention to bring her to Jesus quickly. And finally, Jesus himself seemed to pass her by. Amid the confusion, she could not be heard by him nor catch more than a passing glimpse of his figure. He was so near, but seemed so far. That's the condition of much of suffering humanity. But she had seen a glimpse of Jesus, and that glimpse gave her the opportunity to saw, she sought. She had seen him just ahead, making every exertion, coming from behind. She was able to stretch her arm to the limit and just managed to touch the edge of his garment with her fingertip. She thought she was reaching out to touch Jesus. She was to discover that he was reaching out to touch her. For the instant she touched the edge of the cloth, she felt the power surge through her body and she was made whole. Her bleeding stopped, her anemia vanished, her energy level for the first time in 12 years was normal. Mark says she felt in her body that she was healed of the affliction. Since the woman was healed and knew she was healed, Jesus could have gone on with his travel toward the home of Jairus without further delay. But that's not what happened. Because you see, Jesus was not just a physician of the body. He could not be satisfied by only healing the body. He desired to make man every whit whole. So Jesus stopped, turned around, and asked, who touched me? One eyewitness recalled the scene. The people answered this query with a look of amazement, jostled upon all sides and rudely pressed hither and thither as he was. It seemed indeed a singular inquiry. When all denied it, Peter expressed the confusion of all the disciples by the question, Master, the multitudes throng and press you and you say, who touched me? Jesus continued looking directly at the woman while he explained, somebody touched me for I perceived power going out from me. Now when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling. The years of sickness had shattered her emotionally. She was frightened. The healing of her body had not healed her emotionally. For Jesus to stop his healing by only addressing her physical needs would have made the healing incomplete. For years, she had been embarrassed and ashamed of her problem. She had become adept in hiding the problem from others. Though she was satisfied with one brief touch of the hem of Christ's garment, Jesus had so much more to offer her. Since a brief and distant encounter with Christ was so life-changing, he desired her to come boldly to him in his throne of grace for all the problems of her life. His invitation to her is extended to all who have had a short but life-changing encounter with him. And falling down before him, she had now moved beyond seeing Jesus as the savior of her body. She accepted him as the savior of her soul. Jairus had kneeled before Jesus with a request. This woman kneeled before Jesus with thankfulness and praise. Jesus loves and responds to both kinds of kneeling, bended knees. 
She declared to him in the presence of all the people the reason she had touched him and how she was healed immediately. And after her testimony, Jesus gave her instruction that would guide her for the rest of her life. And he said to her, daughter. He assured her that she was his child and she had all the privileges of a child. It was not alone for this woman that Jesus paused. He wanted to increase Jairus' faith and teach Jairus important spiritual truth as well. Just as Jairus was concerned about the illness of his daughter, he saw that Jesus had a father's concern for the well-being of this outcast woman, his daughter. Be of good cheer. Her years of illness had brought her depression. Jesus now addressed the woman's depression. She was a child of the king. There was no reason for hopelessness. For God's children, weeping may endure for the night, but joy comes in the morning. She might have endured 12 long, painful, embarrassing years, but God had not forsaken her during this time. Her illness had taught her the limited value of money or specialists to solve the problems of life. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. It was not until now that she was ready to be healthy. The experience so grievous was for her good, like Moses' years herding sheep or Israel's 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, like Job's losses, his illnesses, or David's years as a fugitive, she could know that all things would work together for those who loved God. Didn't you love this story that we heard this morning about that hand that was deformed? I, uh, I want to make sure that I get that story for my, my records. Thank you for sharing that. But it's true not only for people with deformed hands or sickness, it's true for all of us, isn't it? Your faith has made you well. It was trusting God in the darkness that made her well, and it was trusting God in the light that would keep her well. Go in peace. Like the publican worshiper who prayed for mercy and left the temple justified, this woman had not only had her body cleansed, her soul was cleansed as well. She was forgiven. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. For a moment, Jairus forgot his own anxiety as he listened to the woman's tearful testimony of long days of suffering now in the past. His own heart was being softened. The healing touch of Jesus was providing a remedy for Jairus. We see that Jesus' healing ministry goes far beyond the body, don't we? The delay of Jesus had been so intensely interesting, we're told, in its results that even the anxious father felt no impatience, but watched the scene with deep interest. As the healed woman was sent away comforted and rejoicing, it encouraged him to believe still more firmly that Jesus was able to grant his own petition and heal his daughter, but just then, a message came that was to test his faith more deeply. While he was still speaking, someone came from the ruler of the synagogue's house saying to him, your daughter's dead. Do not trouble the teacher. Jairus thought he was coming to Jesus to save his daughter. He didn't realize Jesus was seeking to apply the healing remedy to his own soul. But Jairus is now ready to be treated more directly. 
Jesus overheard the report and dealt not with the physical issues of the daughter, but the emotional and spiritual issues of the father. But when Jesus heard it, he answered him saying, do not be afraid, only believe, and she will be made well. Jairus had two great problems. He was fearful. Second, he was unbelieving. These would keep him out of heaven. These sins are classed with abominations, murders, moral impurity, witchcraft, idol worship, and dishonesty. Jesus' word could as powerfully heal Jairus' fearfulness and doubts as it could resurrect and heal his daughter. And when he came into the house, he permitted no one to go in except Peter, James, and John, and the father and mother of the girl. The throngs following Jesus are left outside. Here we see how Jesus conducted an anointing service. It was done quietly, privately. Jesus had spoken with Jairus. Now he had an opportunity to speak to the wife and mother as well. Jesus' work is primarily an individual work. He is not interested in simply educating the masses. He delights to minister to the needs of the individual. He doesn't look over our group today and see a group. He looks over our group today and sees each individual in this group and seeks to minister to your needs. Jesus works in homes. He restores family. Though the throngs following Jesus were not permitted in the house, there was much confusion within the home. Now all wept and mourned for her, but he said, do not weep, she is not dead, but sleeping. Humans are so clueless. We mourn at the wrong time in the wrong way for the wrong reasons. We laugh when we should be weeping, weeping, weep when we should be rejoicing. What good would all this wailing do to restore this girl's health? And what is the point of mourning for this girl? She was going to be well in a few moments. These mourners didn't wail when the girl took a nap. Why wail here? There's no reason to mourn in the presence of Jesus. In his presence is fullness of joy. He wipes all tears from their eyes. These mourners stopped mourning and started ridiculing Jesus. They ridiculed him knowing that she was dead. But death is not the end. Jesus gives life. He forgives our iniquities. He redeems our life from destruction. But he put them all outside. This was a miniature judgment. Disbelievers will be outside the city walls. Jesus separates the wheat from the tares and the chaff. By our response to the word of God, to truth, we determine whether we will be put outside. Those who want to remain in Jesus' joyful presence will put out of their minds all doubt and disbelief of God's word. And in this enacted parable, Jesus was also saying our children need to be protected from the influence of doubters and scoffers of God's word. No sense to raise them in that environment or they will quickly die again. Do you want to do comprehensive medical missionary work? Dismiss the ideas of any who would ridicule the Bible or the spirit of prophecy. After Jesus put the doubters and mockers outside, what did Jesus do? Did he give her health education? There is a place for health education, but it doesn't help the dead. 
There's a place for instruction, but it doesn't help the dead. We heard that this morning from Fred. Jesus came close to Jairus' daughter and took her by the hand that was cold from death. Jesus' approach to each person is individualized. He said nothing to the woman who was bleeding. He simply came as close as her arm reached. To the man with a withered hand, he said, stretch it out. But he took the hand of the dead daughter of Jairus as medical missionaries. We need to know each type and how to reach them or how to have them reach us. Then Jesus called saying, little girl, arise. Then her spirit returned and she arose immediately and he commanded that she be given something to eat. At Kettering Medical Center, Adventist Institution in Ohio, a year ago, there was a man that was pronounced dead. And he was dead for 45 minutes, flatlined. And his family were there mourning, praying, in 45 minutes after he was dead, he suddenly sat up. Well, he didn't sit up. He suddenly, his eyes fluttered, opened up, and he became conscious. But he wasn't able to leave the hospital for a week. Not this girl. She arose immediately, and now is the time for health education. And Jesus does this, tells them to feed her. And her parents were astonished, but he charged them to tell no one what had happened. Medical evangelism is effective in bringing publicity, protection, and prosperity to God's cause. We saw that last night. And although medical missionary work brought Jesus great fame and publicity, that was not the purpose of these works of benevolence. Jesus' medical missionary work was a quiet work, a work without outward show. Jesus doesn't heal us to bring himself fame and fortune. He heals to bring us comfort and relief. He used the physical as a means to introduce the spiritual. Bless the Lord, O my soul. And all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Who forgives all your iniquities. Who heals all your diseases who redeems your life from destruction, who crowns you with loving kindness and tender mercies, who satisfies your mouth with good things, so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Let's pray, shall we? Father in heaven, it's so exciting to be a part of a movement which is getting back to basics, and that's where we need to combine medical work and ministry. Lord, um, I suspect that most of us here are becoming at least, if not already, convinced of the need for that. And uh, perhaps sometimes one of the difficult things is how we practically institute that because we often work in systems that work against this approach. So Lord, as we'll have more opportunity through the conference to be able to uh, network together to be able to discuss ideas, um, to positively encourage one another. We pray that it will all start with a personal revival for getting to know you again 
more and more. Lord, you need to be center of our lives. And Lord, as the song has said, we're prone to wander. Lord, we feel it. We're prone to leave the one we love. But Lord, we know, we pray that you'll forgive us and that you'll take us back and that you'll have us uh, work for you. And Lord, we're about to have a meal so- shortly as well and we pray for a blessing over this food that will be uh, served to us shortly. We thank you for the staff at the Salvation Army Centre here who are serving us. We just pray for a blessing over the rest of this conference. May your angels and spirit be present here, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.